EM Guidewire, hard-hitting emergency medicine from Carolina's Medical Center. Welcome back to EM Guidewire and yet another episode of the Chief's Corner. We'll send you now to two of our chief residents, Dr. Matthew Cravens and Dr. Mark Kastner. Guys, take it away. Hey everyone, welcome to our EM Guidewire podcast. My name is Mark Kastner. I'm one of the PGY3 residents and also chief resident. And my name is Matt Cravens, also PGY3 and chief resident. So Dr. Cravens, let's start today's episode with a case. So you have a 48-year-old female presenting to our emergency department with some upper extremity and lower extremity paresthesias, significant pain that she describes as body aches, and she's also describing difficulty walking because of some lower extremity weakness. Now, most important, this is actually her fifth visit to the emergency department. She's been seen for back pain and body aches uh, about four previous times over the past month. And so now she's coming to you looking for some more specific answers because this is getting really persistent. And now this morning she woke up and she wasn't able to walk because she felt so weak. So uh, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, any patient that has come to the emergency department multiple times for a same complaint or a same story arc needs to raise red flags in your mind. I think there's some patients that come to the ED all the time and you look back and they've been here you know, once a week for an eternity. Well, maybe you're not as worried about those patients, but this is a patient, I assume, that's not coming to the ER every single day, and yet she's been here four times or five times over the last month. So big red flag for me there. The second thing is that if they can't walk and they're a normal person who used to be able to walk, that means they're getting the million-dollar uh, history and physical for me and then the million-dollar workup and admission. Totally agree. I mean, you, you can't send someone home who can't walk. And uh, so, as you said, you do a great neurological exam, and you notice that she does not have any patella reflexes. She does not have any ankle reflexes bilaterally. You feel like her grip strength is three out of five, and her uh, ankle strength is three out of five. You also do a gait exam, and she shuffles when she walks, but she's not necessarily ataxic. Um, so she is able to stand up on her own at that point. So now you have a patient who is here for her fifth visit. She's had persistent paresthesias in all four of her extremities. And now you know that she doesn't have reflexes in her lower extremities and she's got some decreased strength on your physical exam. What are you going to do next for a patient like this? Well, you said she couldn't walk, but then, you know, she walked. So sounds like sounds like an easy discharge, right, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> she walked, but she shuffled. All right. Okay. So, you know, what you're describing is concerning, and I, but I think we need to be more discerning as ER doctors as, yes, we need to recognize, okay, bad neuro stuff equals bad consult neuro admit. But I think we need to be a little more discerning than that. What you're describing sounds like she has both upper and lower extremity weakness. It seems like it's more peripheral because you describe grip strength and ankle plantar flexion and dorsiflexion, and it's bilateral and symmetric. So that alone should start to give me some idea this is probably a peripheral polyneuropathy. You know, I would compare that to unilateral findings, which would make me think some, more about something central, maybe a stroke, or compare it to more, you know, uh, central findings versus peripheral. Right. So you're thinking exactly on the same lines that the providers were thinking when they were taking care of this patient. So, you know, you're thinking more of a polyneuropathy. And what's the polyneuropathy that comes to your head when you think about it? Well, this patient sounds like they have ascending polyneuropathy that starts distal. It's got some sensory involvement. It's motor. You know, I'm not a neurologist, but it sounds like Guillain-Barre syndrome to me. Definitely. And so you go back in there and you take a little bit more of a history. And the patient herself tells you that, you know, Doc, a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, I had a fever of 101.3 degrees. I took my temperature at home and I had some body aches. And that was, you know, a, a few weeks ago, um, but I didn't really think it was related. 
And so, you know, that definitely increases your suspicion for something like Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mark, what is Guillain-Barre syndrome? Guillain-Barre syndrome is a neurological condition that usually is taught to start with lower extremity weakness that ascends up to the upper extremities and is accompanied by a reflexia and some sensory changes. Now, the exact pathophysiology of Guillain-Barre syndrome is still pretty unknown. The leading theory is that your body develops antigens and antibody complexes that attack the myelin sheaths on the outside of the neuron, and they start to destroy those myelin sheaths, making the neuron essentially functionless. That's what causes or leads to the extremity weakness and paresthesias and the lack of reflexes. Guillain-Barre syndrome, I mean, it's often missed. It's missed in about 75% of patients on their first visit. We know this is a difficult diagnosis, and we know that providers often miss it because of nonspecific complaints when patients first start to develop symptoms, such as things like body aches, paresthesias. And when looking back on this patient's first visit, her initial complaints were just some upper back pain and body aches. And that certainly could be her way of describing upper extremity paresthesias. It's difficult to tell at this point, but now she's coming into you with some significant objective findings right? She's areflexic. She's got objectively decreased strength in all four extremities at this point. And she reports to you a history of a fever and some body aches, which make you think of some sort of viral infection that preceded all of these initial symptoms. So, you know, you want to be a great doctor and you want to try and make this diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So what do you want to do to try and diagnose it? Well, Guillain-Barre syndrome is definitely a clinical diagnosis. So, you know, it's going to be made based on the neurologic exam and based on the history. But there's definitely certain things that I want to do to exclude any other cause and, and as well just to fully work up this patient. This patient should have a lumbar puncture. Obviously, classically, you'd expect to see albuminocytologic dissociation in these patients, but it, it's often not there, especially early on in their illness. Now, this patient sounds like the course has been going on for at least a couple of weeks, so maybe I would expect to see that. But, you know, regardless, it, it is not necessary to make the diagnosis, and some patients never get it. You definitely nailed that one. With a patient who has got a fever and some neurological findings, I think a lumbar puncture is always going to be something that can help you. It can at least help you rule out things like meningitis. But in this patient's case, we're looking for Guillain-Barre syndrome, so you're going to do a lumbar puncture, and you do find albuminocytologic dissociation. The patient has high protein count in their CSF, and she's got three white blood cells and zero red blood cells. So you got it. You got a champagne tap, Dr. Cravens. I owe you one. I mean, I assume this is in the, the first tube. You know, they, I've had an intern that showed me the fourth tube with no red cells. I'm like, okay, come on. Listen, you're not getting a maybe Prosecco. <laughs> maybe Prosecco. Prosecco's better, honestly. <laughs> anyway, so, so you get your lumbar puncture and you see that the patient has high protein and you're less suspicious for acute infection like meningitis. And this, again, supports your diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So what do you do? You call neurology, right? Neurology comes down, evaluates the patient, agrees with your neurological exam, and uh, the patient gets admitted to the medicine service for potential Guillain-Barre syndrome. You've already helped them with their workup. You've done your lumbar puncture. You've ruled out some of the things and ruled in the potential of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Clinically, you think the patient has Guillain-Barre syndrome with absent reflexes and some decreased strength. You also have a history that supports a preceding viral infection of some sort with fever and body aches. Neurology gets on board and they want to treat the patient. What do you think they treat the patient with, Dr. Cravens? Well, I'm guessing they're going to go with IVIG. Typically, it's given, and I think it's a daily dose for five days. You know, a single treatment is what's usually given. I just actually saw something on UpToDate today that said there's no evidence for a second course of IVIG if the patients don't improve significantly, which is interesting. But we always used to talk about plasma exchange. What does that entail? Plasma exchange entails a lot of work and a lot of money. And the research has showed that IVIG is just as efficacious. And so 
That's why most centers are mostly giving IVIG to treat Guillain-Barre syndrome, especially if they don't have the ability to do a plasma exchange. That involves putting in a dialysis or vascular access catheter, going to the ICU, getting the dialysis machine ready, and having specific staff that's trained to do that. And so a lot of times that involves transferring the patient to a tertiary center of some sort, whereas a lot of hospitals can actually just give IVIG on their own without getting the ICU players involved. Now, they gave this patient five days worth of IVIG, and she does report some increased and improved strength shortly after that course of IVIG. She's still requiring significant physical therapy and occupational therapy resources to help regain her strength, but the IVIG seemed to definitely work. Now, they put her on the floor to get that IVIG, which is certainly appropriate, but to make sure the patient is stable for the floor, there's one more thing you have to check, Dr. Cravens. You remember the name of it? It's something about, you know, how much, how fast you can breathe in and what kind of the, the force you can generate, maybe inspiratorily, maybe negative force. So you're exactly right, Dr. Cravens. You have to check a NIF, a negative inspiratory force. Essentially, respiratory therapy will help you with this, but there's a device that you can use where the patient will inspire and calculate how much force they can use to take that big, deep breath in. And you use that to clinically determine their risk for respiratory effects from the Guillain-Barre syndrome and other neurological diseases as well. But again, we're focusing on Guillain-Barre syndrome on this patient. So you look for, you get a NIF, and the NIF is actually negative 65 in the patient, which is a good thing. The more negative, the more that they can pull in, meaning the more their diaphragm works. And so this patient is stable for the floor specifically, but you get more concerned the more positive the NIF gets, meaning that the patient can't take in as deep of a breath as they should. And that makes you suspicious that their diaphragm is starting to get involved by the Guillain-Barre syndrome or whatever neurological pathology you're evaluating with the NIF. The more at risk the patient is for respiratory side effects of Guillain-Barre, syndrome, the more likely they are to head to the ICU so they can be closely monitored or even intubated depending on how bad their NIF is. So you want to check their NIF on the floor at least every eight hours in order to make sure that they're not progressively getting worse. So our patient regains her strength and with the assistance of PT and OT gets the ability to walk comfortably again and ultimately is discharged with some continued physical therapy at home. Now Dr. Cravens, we've talked a lot about Guillain-Barre syndrome, but let's really hammer down some of the important facts. So typically, this is a clinical diagnosis. Typically, you'll see lower extremity weakness that progresses to the upper extremities over a period of time, and the patient typically will lose their reflexes as well. Now, this doesn't always happen early on in the course, and everyone has a different time frame for which the disease progresses, so you have to have a high clinical suspicion early on, which I think is often why this is missed. Another important thing is some patients won't walk in and complain of weakness. Their chief complaint might actually be pain, body aches, paresthesias. Asking more specific questions about their description of each of these complaints is really important to kind of clue you into Guillain-Barre syndrome. Now, we know it's a clinical diagnosis. There's definitely adjuncts you can use to help guide your suspicion. Looking for high protein in the lumbar puncture and lack of white blood cells, meaning you're less likely to have an infection and and sort of cluing the diagnosis into Guillain-Barre syndrome. We know we're going to treat these patients with the IVIG and getting physical therapy and occupational therapy on board early, as well as getting them a neurology consult so they can help sort of tailor the IVIG and continue to monitor the patient's symptoms. Mark, do you get a NIF in the ED to help determine the patient's disposition? Yeah, that's extremely important in helping to determine if they need to go to the ICU or the floor. And so before they go anywhere, I want to know what their NIF is. I want to make sure that they're stable enough to be on the floor and get Q eight-hour NIFs. Because if their NIF is already abnormal, then they probably need more frequent observation, meaning more frequent NIFs. So the patient might be better served in the ICU, especially if they're already starting to show respiratory symptoms. They need to be somewhere where their airway can be managed. 
Mark, this sounds like a pretty homogenous patient population, right? I mean, all these patients have a febrile illness. Probably about two weeks later, they start to have a gradual progression of neurosymptoms, which includes paresthesias, plus or minus some pain. And then they get weak in their toes and, and their fingers and slowly get weak over about a couple of days. And then they come to you and say, hey, I think I have Guillain-Barre syndrome. Is that right, Mark? They, it's pretty homogenous? Unfortunately, that's what makes this diagnosis so challenging is that patients never present like the textbook reads. You have to have a high suspicion for this. So patients might have things like pain in weird areas or might complain of a burning sensation. Or even if you touch them, they, they have significant pain. So because the disease course is so different in so many people, you have to have a high clinical suspicion for it, especially if they're coming in with really nonspecific complaints like body aches or some mild paresthesias with maybe a fever and a cough a couple weeks before. This disease can progress either really quickly within 72 hours or can be a slower onset within three to four weeks. And so everyone kind of is a little different and no patient reads the textbook and has a specific time course. So you as the ED provider might be seeing them at any point in their progression, whether it's a really early stage where they just have some mild paresthesias, or maybe two weeks later when they're coming in with lower extremity weakness and no reflexes. And so that's why you really have to keep that on your differential whenever you hear certain buzzwords like paresthesias, weakness, lower extremity complaints, recent febrile illness, and things like that. Yeah, it seems like this is a super heterogeneous group. You said that we only catch about 25% of these patients in their initial index visit, which is obviously super low. You know, some patients can look totally fine, and then the next day they're intubated in the ICU. And that's frustrating to us when we expect a certain clinical course and they can just vary so widely. But I think that's something that you expect for Guillain-Barre syndrome, the unexpected. Definitely. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on today's episode of EM Guidewire. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out. <laughs> Tuning fork. Nice. <laughs> close, 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 close. Close enough. That's very nifty. Yeah, that, was that was fun. That was like a little dad joke.